Minority influence. Minority influence is a form of social influence in which a minority of people uh, persuade others to adopt their beliefs, attitude or behaviours, which leads to internalisation or conversion, in which private attitudes are changed as well as public behaviours. The three aspects of minority influence you need to know are consistency, commitment and flexibility. Consistency is where a minority influence is most effective because the minority keeps the same beliefs, both over time and between all the individuals that form the minority. Before we continue, it must be said that minority influence is most likely to lead to internalisation, where both public behaviour and private beliefs are changed. Moscovici et al. in 1969 uh, demonstrated minority influence in a study where a group of six people were asked to view a set of 36 coloured blue slides that varied in intensity and shade and then state whether the slides were blue or green. Each groom had two confederates uh, who consistently said the slides were green on two-thirds of the trials. The participants gave the same wrong answer uh, on 8.42% uh, of the trials. 32% gave the same answer as the minority on at least one trial. A second group of participants was exposed to an inconsistent minority and agreement fell to 1.25%. For a third control group, there were no confederates and all participants had to do was identify the colour of each slide. They got this wrong only 0.25% of the trials. This shows that over time the consistency in the minority's views increases the amount of interest from other peoples. There are two types of consistency. Synchronic syn consistency, which is that they're all saying the same thing, and diachronic consistency, that they've been saying the same thing for some time. Such consistency makes other people start to rethink their own views. Commitment. Sometimes minorities engage in quite extreme activities to draw attention to their views. Uh, it's important that these activities are at some risk to the minority because this demonstrates commitment to the cause. Majority group members then pay even more attention, uh, which is called the augmentation principle. This is where the majority pay more attention as the impact of the minority has been augmented. Flexibility. Relentless consistency could be counterintuitive if they seem unreasonable or dogmatic. So minority influence is more effective if the minority show flexibility by accepting a possibility of compromise. Members of the minority need to be prepared to adapt their point of view and accept reasonable and valid counter-arguments. The aim of the minority is to strike a balance between consistency and flexibility. The process of change. All three factors outlined above make people think about the topic. If we hear something we agree with, then it doesn't make us stop and think. But hearing something new makes us think about it, especially if the other view is consistent and passionate. Increasing numbers of people um, switch from the majority position to the minority position. The more this happens, the faster the rate of conversion, which is called the snowball effect. Think of it as in terms of exponential growth. Gradually, the minority view has become the majority view and change has occurred. AO3. There is research support for the importance of consistency in minority influence. For example, Moscovici's study showed that a consistent minority opinion had a greater effect on people than an inconsistent position. 
This is further supported by Wood et al. in 1994, who carried out a meta-analysis of almost 100 similar studies and found that minorities who were seen as the most consistent were the most influential. This suggests that consistency is a major factor in minority influence. However, a limitation of influence, uh, sorry, research into minority influence is that tasks involved are quite artificial. For example, in Moscovici's study, participants had to identify the colour of a slide. This is a weakness because these tasks do not represent how minorities attempt to change the behaviour of majorities in real life. For example, by political campaigning, um, which is vastly important in the outcomes of elections. This means that the findings of minority influence studies such as Moscovici's are lacking in external validity in what they tell us about minority influence uh, working in real life. In addition to this, the process involved in majority and minority influence are much more complicated than the ways um, they are investigated in a lab situation. For example, research studies usually make a distinction between majority and minority influence on the basis of numbers. However, in the real world, majorities usually have a lot more power and status than minorities, and minorities are very committed to their causes. They have to be because they often face very hostile opposition. Therefore, the processes and factors involved in minority influence in real life may be much more complex than uh, research studies suggest. However, there is support for internalisation. For example, in Moscovici's study, participants were allowed to write down their answers rather than state them out loud. In these circumstances, the agreement with the minority was higher, suggesting that members of the majority were being convinced by the minority's arguments, but may have been reluctant to admit this to the public, maybe because of um, being thought of as weird. Therefore, this supports the idea that minority influence leads to a change in private beliefs, even if they're not always expressed by the public. Milgram then carried out um, many different variations of his original baseline study. These situational variables were proximity, location and uniform. Proximity. Uh, proximity. While the original study at Yale had a 65% um, rate of participants going to the full 450 volts, Milgram found that when the learner was in the same room as the participants, the obedience level went down to 40%. When the experimenter forced the hand onto the plate, this went down a further 10% to 30%. And when the experimenter gave over orders over the phone, the obedience level went down to 20.5%. Location. The original study was done in Yale University in, I guess, what was a lab, but they changed the location in this variation to a rundown office block. This decreased obedience to 47.5%, going to the full 450 volts. Milgram also studied um, the variation on uniform. Uniform is closely linked to legitimacy of authority. These are that authority figures are agreed by society and so that we accept that people in authority as indicated by their uniform and the clothes that they wear um, have the power to punish other uh, people. That when the learner wore um, their own clothes and clothes similar to the participant, uh, they were, the obedience level dropped down to 20% from 65%. 
as they no longer were perceived to have informational authority and social authority over the participant. AO3. Milgram's findings support a situational explanation of obedience. For example, by systematically altering one variable at a time, such as proximity, whilst keeping all the other procedures and variables the same, Milgram could see the effect that each variable had in relation to obedience. The fact that obedience levels change, changed when aspects of the situation changed supports a situational explanation of obedience, as in certain circumstances, more people are likely to obey. However, the high level of control that Milgram allowed to manipulate these variables meant that the experiment lacked its validity and therefore cannot be sure whether the same situational variables would affect obedience in real life. However, a study done by Bickman in 1974 also supported the influence of situational variables on obedience. For example, he did a natural experiment where Confederates dressed in a jacket slash tie, a milkman's outfit and as, or as a security guard asked people to do tasks such as picking up litter they found that people who were more likely to obey uh, the security guard than someone dressed in a shirt and tie, which supports Milgram's conclusions that uniform conveys authority and is a situational factor likely to produce results. The fact that this study took part in a natural setting provides good evidence to support the idea that situational factors such as uniform is an important factor in obedience. Findings. For example, they found that 21 out of 22 nurses on the hospital ward complied with an unreasonable demand from a doctor despite the fact that the order was given over the phone. This would go against Melbourne's findings on proximity, as he found that when instructions given over the phone, obedience levels went down to 20.5%. However, this finding could be explained by the fact that the doctor was perceived to be a legitimate authority figure, uh, someone who has right to give orders. And therefore, this factor may be more important in obedience than proximity. A problem with situational explanation of obedience is that it cannot be a complete explanation of obedience. For example, only 65% of participants in Milgram's study, despite all being faced with the same situational pressures, obeyed. This suggests that personality must play a part in why some people obey and others find it easier to resist authority. Therefore, a situational explanation is too simplistic as it cannot explain obedience in everybody. A final issue with the situational explanation is that it has been criticised for providing an obedience alibi. For example, this explanation has been used to explain events for, uh, such as the Holocaust. This is a problem because the suggestion that the perpetrators of the Holocaust were simply obeying orders which they felt compelled to do due to situational pressures effectively exonerates war criminals of their crimes. However, on the positive side, if we can identify the situational factors that increase obedience, we can use this information to try and reduce such atrocities in the future. Socio-psychological factors of obedience. These are factors of obedience that occur within groups or between two people, rather than sort of a more biological approach that would suggest that it's our personality that causes um, obedience. So the two things you need to know are agentic state and legitimacy of authority. Agentic state is a mental state where we feel no personal responsibility for our behaviour because we think that ourselves to be acting for an authority figure uh, as their agent. This frees us from the demands of, the con of conscience and allows us to obey even a destructive authority figure. This can lead to 
uh, obedience to destructive authority because a per person does not take responsibility. An agent is not an unfeeling puppet. They can experience high anxiety and moral strain when they realise what they are doing is wrong but feel powerless to disobey. The opposite of being in an agentic state is being in an autonomous state. Autonomous meaning to be independent or free. A person in an autonomous state is free to behave according to their own principles and their feels a responsibility of their own actions. The shift from autonomy to agency is called agentic shift. Milgram suggested that this occurs when a person perceives someone else as being a figure of authority. This other person has greater power because of their position in the social hierarchy. In most social groups where one person is in charge, others defer to this person and shift from autonomous state to agentic state. Binding elements are aspects of the situation um, that allow the agent to minimise and ignore the damaging effects of their behaviour, shifting responsibility for the victim, for example, or denying the damage that they are causing. The presence of buffers also um, uh, prevents the person from having to acknowledge the consequences of their actions. A buffer is anything that prevents the person from having to acknowledge the consequences of their actions. The theory of gradual commitment is also um, where you are told to do something small and then gradually the orders become more extreme, but by then you can't say no. Legitimacy of authority. Most societies are structured in a hierarchical way, meaning that certain people have old authority over us. For example, parents and police officers. The authority they wield is legitimate in the sense that it's agreed by society. Most of us accept that authority figures have to be allowed to exercise social power over others because this allows society to function smoothly. The consequences of legitimacy authority is that people are granted power to punish others. Most of us accept that police and courts have the power to punish wrongdoers, so are willing to give up some of our independence and to hand control of our behaviour over to people we trust to exercise their authority appropriately. Therefore, we learn acceptance of legitimacy authority from childhood, as parents initially and then from teachers and adults generally. The destructive authority is pretty self-explanatory and is when legitimate authority becomes destructive. History has shown that charismatic and powerful leaders such as Stalin and Hitler can use their legitimate powers for destructive purposes, ordering people to behave in ways that are wrong. Destructive authority was shown in Milgram's study when the experimenter used prods to order participants to behave in ways that went against their consciences. AO3 for legitimacy of authority. Evidence to support the legitimacy of authority explanation comes from Milgram's variations. For example, Milgram found that when the study was moved from Yale University to a rundown office block, obedience levels dropped from 65% to 47.5%. This suggests that the location of Yale with its prestigious university setting conveyed a legitimacy to the orders being given that was not present in the other condition, supporting the idea that legitimacy of authority is an important factor in whether we obey variations also supports the legitimacy of authority explanation. For example, in one variation where the experimenter was wearing a lab coat, a grey lab coat, was replaced by a member of the public wearing ordinary clothes and obedience levels dropped from 65% to 20%. This supports the idea that when people were wearing a uniform, something that is a visual sign of legitimate authority, people are more likely to obey than wearing a, not a uniform and therefore are not perceived to have authority over us. 
However, critics have argued that this particular variation was so contrived that it is unclear whether the results are genuine reflection of obedience levels or because participants uh, engaged in demand characteristics and saw the aim of the study. However, a study done by Bickman in 1974 also supported the influence of uniform on obedience. For example, he did a natural experiment where confederates dressed in a jacket or tie, a milkman's outfit, or as a security guard asked people to pick up um, tasks, uh, sorry, pick up litter. They found that people were more likely to obey the security guard than the person dressed in the shirt and tie. And this supports Milgram's conclusions that uniform conveys authority and is a situational factor likely to produce results. The fact that the study took part in a natural setting provides good evidence to support the idea that uniform uh, legitimacy of authority is an important factor in obedience. Furthermore, Hoffling's nurses' study also supports the role of legitimacy authority in obedience. For example, they found that 21 out of 22 nurses on the hospital ward complied with an unreasonable demand from the doctor, despite the fact that the order was given over the phone. This would go against Milgram's finding on proximity, as he found that when instructions were given over the phone, obedience levels dropped. But it would support the legitimacy of authority explanation, as the doctors were perceived to have authority over the nurses. Suggesting that whether we perceive someone to have legitimacy authority over us may be a more important factor in whether we obey compared to factors such as presumity. However, a problem with legitimacy of authority as an explanation of obedience is that it cannot be a complete explanation. For example, only 65% of Milgram's original study went to the full 450 volts, despite all being faced with the same authority figure in the setting, suggesting that personality may play a part in why some people obey and others find it easier to resist authority, even when faced with a legitimate authority figure. So, this cannot be a complete explanation of obedience, and perhaps dispositional explanations of, of authority uh, are more accurate. AO3 for agentic state. Support for the agentic state explanation comes from Milgram's variations on proximity. For example, he found that when the experimenter gave orders over the phone rather than, than in the same room, obedience levels dropped. This supports the agentic state explanation as the ex absence of the experimenter means that the participant feels under less pressure to obey and in the absence of the experimenter, they're forced to take responsibility for their own actions. The fact that obedience went from 65% to 20.5% in this variation suggests that when in close proximity to the authority figure, they are more likely to obey as a result of entering into the agentic state. Further support for an explanation, uh, agentic state explanation, comes from another of Milgram's variations. For example, when participants were given the choice about what shock level to give, obedience level dropped from 65% to 2.5%. This suggests that when people are given the choice about which shock level to give, the responsibility is placed on the participants rather than the experimenter, and people are acting in autonomous states and level of obedience go down. This variation therefore supports an agentic state explanation of obedience. Evidence for the role of binding factors comes from Milgram's variations. For example, Milgram says, as we stay in an agentic state, even when we are asked to do something normally wrong because of binding factors, aspects of the environment that allow us to minimize the damaging effects of our behavior. This is supported by his variations on proximity, as when the participants and Mr. Wallace were in separate rooms, obedience was 65% whereas in the same room, obedience dropped to 40%, and the more direct contact, the hand shock on the plate, the less uh, likely we are to obey, 30%. These findings support the idea that when 
we are buffered, i.e. protected, from seeing the effects of our actions, we are more likely to obey. However, the agentic state explanation cannot be a complete explanation of obedience. For example, only 65% of people in Milgram's original study obeyed, despite being faced with the same situational pressures. This therefore suggests that some people may have been in an agentic state when carrying out the shock, but others could revert back to an autonomous state and disobey. Therefore, this suggests that there are individual differences in people's responsibilities to authority figures and that personality plays a role in whether we obey or not, something which is not accounted for in the agentic state explanation and maybe more to do with a dispositional explanation. Resistance to social influence. Resistance to social influence refers to the ability of people to withstand the social pressure to conform of the majority or to obey authority. This ability to withstand social pressure is influenced both by situational and dispositional factors. The social factors you need to know are social support, whereas the uh, dispositional factors you need to know are locus of control. Social support. Uh, social support can help people resist conformity. The pressure to conform can be reduced if there are people present who are not conforming. As shown in Ash's research, the person conforming does not have to be even in the right, but simply the fact that someone else is not following the majority appears to enable the person to be free to follow their own conscience. The other person acts as a model for behaviour. However, Ash's research also showed that if this non-conforming person starts conforming again, so does the naive participant, thus the effect of dissent is not long-lasting. Obedience. So we've just talked about conformity and social support um, in resisting conformity, and now we're going to talk about social support in resisting obedience. Um, the pressure to obey can be reduced if there's another person who is seen to disobey. In one of Milgram's variations, the rate of obedience dropped from 65% to 10% when the genuine participant was joined by a disobedient confederate. The participant may not follow the disobedient person's behaviour, but the point is that the other person's disobedience acts as a model for the participant to copy that uh, frees him to act from his own conscience. However, as a result of legitimacy of authority, the um, participant may have seen the experimenter as having more authority than the confederate who was disobeying, and therefore this explains why 10% still complied, obeyed even. Locus of control. Uh, this is the dispositional um, explanation uh, for resistance to social influence. Rotter first proposed the concept of locus of control in 1966. It is a concept concerned with the internal control versus external control. Uh, it refers to the sense we have about what directs events in our lives. Internals believe that they are mostly responsible for what happens uh, to them, uh, whereas externals believe that it is mainly a matter of um, outside forces. Externals have a tendency to believe that things happen to them without their own control. If they did well in the exam, they might say that it's because if they used an excellent textbook, or if they failed, they may blame it on the textbook. However, internals believe that the things that happen to them are largely controlled by themselves. For example, doing well on an exam is because they worked hard, or if they don't work or do well, it's because they didn't work hard. Continuum. People differ in the way they explain their successes and failures, but it isn't a matter necessarily about being internal or external. There's a continuum with high internal locus of control at one end and high external locus of control on the other end, with low internal and low external lying in between. 
people who have internal locus of control are more likely to be able to resist pressures to conform or obey. This is fairly obvious if you think about it. If a person takes responsibilities for the actions and experiences, then they are more likely to base their decision on their own belief and thus resist pressures to obey. Another explanation is that people with high internal locus of control may also be more self-confident, more achievement-oriented, and have higher intelligence uh, and less need for social approval. These personality traits lead to greater resistance to social influence. AO3 for social support. There is research evidence to support the role of dissenting peers in resisting conformity. For example, Allen and Levine found that conformity decreased when there was a dissenter uh, in an ASH-type study. More importantly, this occurred even if the dissenter wore thick glasses and said um, had difficulty with vision, uh, so clearly was in no position to see the length of the lines. And this supports the view that resistance is not just motivated by following what someone else says, but enables someone to be free of the pressure from the group. There is also um, research evidence that supports the role of dissenting peers in resisting obedience. Gamson et al. found that higher levels of resistance uh, in their study than Milgram. Uh, this was probably because the participants in Gamson's study were in groups and they had to produce evidence that would help an oil company run a smear campaign. In Gamson's study, 29 out of 33 groups of participants, which is 88%, rebelled. This shows that peer support is linked to greater resistance. Evaluation AO3 points for locus of control are as follows. Research evidence supports the link between locus of control and resistance to obedience. Holland repeated Milgram's baseline study and measures whether participants were internals or externals. He found that 37% of internals did not continue to the highest shock level, whereas only 23% of externals did not continue. That is, 63% of internals went to the full 450 volts, whereas 77% of externals continued to the 100, 450 volts. In other words, internals show greater resistance to authority. Research support of this nature increases the validity of locus of control explanation and our confidence that it can explain resistance. However, there is also contradictory research for locus of control. Uh, Twenge et al. analyzed data from the American locus of control studies over a 40 year period. The data showed that over this time span, people have become more resistant to obedience, but also more external. If resistance were linked to internal locus of control, as Rotter suggested, we would expect people to have become more internal. This challenges the link between internal locus of control and resisting um, and increasing resistant behaviour. However, it is possible that the results are due to a changing society where many things are out of personal control. Obedience, Milgram's research. Stanley Milgram, in 1963, sought to answer the question of why such a high proportion of the German people supported Hitler's plan. He began his research by establishing a method to study obedience. The original study is one against which all the other variations are compared, which is why it's sometimes called the baseline study. Milgram used a volunteer sample of 40 male participants, which he found through newspaper adverts and flyers in the post. The ad said he was looking for participants for a study about memory. The participants recruited were between uh, 20 and 50 years, and their jobs ranged from unskilled to professional. They were also offered £4.50 to take part, 
which was a reasonable amount of money in the 1960s. There was a rigged draw for their role, which was deception, and therefore one of your AO3 points could be about deception. Um, a confederate named Mr. Wallace always ended up being the learner, while the true participant was the teacher, and the experimenter, which was another confederate, was dressed in a lab coat and played by an actor. Participants were told that they could leave the study at any time. However, if the teacher, who was the participant, felt unsure about continuing, the experimenter used the sequence of four prods. Uh, these were, please continue or please go on. The experiment requires that you continue. It is absolutely essential that you continue. Or, you have no other choice, you must go on. An AO3 point is that while the first three appeal to the scientific nature of the experiment, the third um, appeals to the human nature of the participant, saying you have no other choice, you must go on, rather than appealing to the experiment requires that you continue. This also raises issues about right to withdraw. For example, the participant may have felt coerced into continuing the experiment, and it also may have made the experiment less believable, as the experimenter wouldn't let the teacher continue if there was something seriously wrong. The learner was strapped in a chair and the teacher was required to give a shock to the learner increasingly severe each time they made a mistake on the learning task. The task involved learning new word pairs. The shock level started at 15 uh, and rose through 30 levels to 450 volts. However, at 300 volts, the learner pounded on the wall and after the 315 volt shock, the learner um, had no response. The findings were that no participants stopped below 300 volts. However, 12.5% of participants stopped at 300 volts. 65% continued to the highest level of 450 volts. Qualitative data found that participants also showed signs of extreme tension. Many of them were reported as sweating, trembling and stuttering. And three even had, quote, full-blown uncontrollable seizures, unquote. Milgram had asked 14 psychology students to predict the participants' behaviour before the study. The students estimated that no more than 3% of the participants would continue to 450 volts, so the findings were not expected. The participants were debriefed and assured their behaviour was normal. They were also sent a follow-up questionnaire where 84% reported that they felt glad to have participated. However, this means that 16% of the participants felt that they didn't want to have participated. AO3. Critics argue that Milgram's study lacked internal validity. For example, Orn and Holland in 1958 argued that participants behaved in the way they did because they didn't really believe in the setup. They guessed that it wasn't a real electric shocks. This is a problem because it suggests that the participants were just play acting or showing demand characteristics. Therefore, if this was the case, Milgram was not testing what he'd intended to test and his results lacked validity, i.e. people wouldn't have acted in this way if they thought the shocks were true. However, a study by Sheridan and King suggests that Milgram's findings did have validity. For example, they conducted a study where real shocks were given to a puppy. Despite the real shocks, 54% of males and 100% of females delivered what they thought was a fatal shock. This suggests that the effects of Milgram's study were genuine because people behaved the same way with real shocks in Sheridan and King's study in 1972. This was supported by the interviews Milgram conducted after the experiment where 70% of the participants said that they believed the shocks were real, suggesting high internal validity. 
However, Milgram can be um, criticised for his original study in, by Sheridan and King because uh, Sheridan and King found that while 54% of males delivered the fatal shock, 100% of females delivered the fatal shock, suggesting that there is a difference between uh, female obedience and male obedience. However, in Milgram's baseline study, he only tested 40 male participants, and therefore the results may lack validity and ungeneralizability um, to the whole population. Milgram's study can be criticised for lacking external validity, and in particular ecological validity, as it was done in a lab. For example, participants were put in an artificial environment and done an artificial task. This is a problem because participants may have behaved differently in this situation to how they would respond to an authority figure in real life. Therefore, this means we cannot generalise Milgram's findings to real-life settings where people may be more obedient or less obedient. However, Milgram argued that the lab experiment actually reflected wider authority relationships in real life, i.e. that between the authority figure, experiment and participant. This argument is supported by Hoffling et al., who found very high levels of obedience in nurses when faced with unjustified demands from a doctor. This suggests that the process of obedience to authority that occurred in Milgram's lab study can be generalised to other situations, and therefore his findings do have something valuable to tell us about how obedience operates in real life. Further evidence for this argument, the idea that Milgram's study has external validity, comes from a French do documentary about reality TV called Le Jeu de Mort, The Game of Death. This study involved a replication of Milgram's study where participants believed that they were contestants on a game show to go, uh, who were paid to give electric shocks when ordered by the presenter. In a remarkable confirmation of Milgram's findings, 80% of the participants delivered the maximum shock to an apparently unconscious man. Interestingly, the participants showed behaviour that was almost identical to that of Milgram's participants, i.e. laughter and nail-biting. This replication supports Milgram's original conclusions about obedience to authority and demonstrates that his findings were not just a one-off chance. Dispositional explanations of obedience. Any explanation of a behaviour that highlights the importance of an individual's personalities uh, is to do with disposition. An authoritarian personality is a type of personality that Adorno argued was especially susceptible to obeying people in authority. Such individuals are also thought to be submissive to those of a higher status and dismissive of inferiors. Adorno found that um, a high level of obedience was basically a psychological disorder, and they tried to locate the causes of it to fit in with the personality of the individual. Adorno, in 1950, uh, investigated the causes of the obedience personality in a study of more than 2,000 middle-class white Americans and their unconscious attitudes towards other racial groups. They developed several scales to investigate this, including a potential for fascism scale, the F scale, which was used to measure authoritarian personality. Two examples of items from the F scale are obedience and respect for authority are the most important virtues children should learn, and there is hardly anything lower than a person who does not feel great love, gratitude and respect for his parents. Findings. Probably the most interesting discovery was that people uh, with authoritarian leanings, those who scored high on the F scale and other uh, measures, identified with strong people and were genuinely, generally contemptuous of the weak. They were conscious of their own and other status, showing express 
excessive respect, deference and civility to those of higher status. They found that those with authoritarian personalities had a cognitive style where there was no fuzziness between categories of people with fixed and distinct stereotypes about other groups. There's a strong positive correlation between authoritarianism and prejudice. Authoritarian characteristics. Adorno concluded that people with an authoritarian personality have a tendency to be especially obedient. They have extreme respect for authority and show contempt for people they perceive as having inferior social status, having highly conventional attitudes towards sex, race and gender. They view society uh, as declining and therefore believe we need strong and powerful leaders to enforce traditional values such as love of country. People with an authoritarian personality are inflexible in their outlook. For them, there are no grey areas. Everything is either right or wrong, and they are uncomfortable with uncertainty. Adorno sought to identify the origin of this personality and concluded that it formed in childhood as a result of harsh parenting. For example, the typical parenting style identified by Adorno features uh, extremely strict discipline and an expectation of absolute loyalty, impossible high standards, and severe criticisms of perceived failings. It is also characterised by conditional love, that is, the parent's love and affection on the child depends entirely on how they behave. Adorno argued that these experiences create resentment and hostility in the child, but the child cannot express these feelings directly against their parents because of a well-founded fear of reprisals. So fears are displaced onto others who are perceived to be weaker, known as scapegoating. Uh, the central trait of obedience uh, is explained this way, uh, which is the dislike for people considered to be socially inferior who belong to other social groups. This is a psychodynamic explanation. AO3. There is research evidence to suggest that personality is a key factor in obedience. For example, Milgram's original study found that 65% of participants obeyed, which means that 35% did not. This suggests that personality must play a role as all the participants were faced with the same situational pressures, but some chose to obey and some were able to resist, which suggests that there must be a personality playing a role in obedience. There are also methodological issues with Adorno's research. For example, Adorno used interviews in order to assess people's childhoods, but in these interviews took place after they had completed the F-scale and researchers knew participants' test scores. This is an issue because if researchers knew the hypothesis, they may have shown researcher bias and, for example, focused on more negative aspects of someone's childhood who had scored highly, whereas they may have glossed over this in someone with a low score. This would have distorted the results in favour of the hypothesis and means that the study may lack internal validity due to investigator bias. There is research support for the link between authoritarian personality and obedience. For example, Milgram interviewed a small sample of fully obedient participants who had scored highly on the F scale, believing that there may be a link between the two. This suggests that there may be a link between obedience and authoritarian personality, but because it is a correlation, we cannot establish cause and effect. Therefore, we cannot say that an authoritarian personality causes obedience on the basis of this research. Although there is research support for the link between authoritarian personality and obedience, it is only a correlation. This means that we cannot say that one variable, authoritarian personality, causes a change in the other variable, i.e. obedience. As a result, a third factor may be involved that is responsible for both. For example, Milgram found that those with a lower level of education more often had authoritarian personalities and um, 
than well-educated people and that participants with low levels of education tended to be more obedient. This suggests a lack of education could be responsible for both authoritarianism and obedience. The dispositional explanation underestimates the role of social context, however. For example, although Milgram accepted that there may be a link between authoritarian personality and obedience, Milgram showed that variations in the social context of the study, i.e. proximity, were the primary causes of differences in levels of obedience. This suggests that the specific social situation participants found themselves in caused them to obey or resist regardless of their personalities. So an explanation based purely on personality lacks the flexibility to account for these variations. Adorno said that authoritarian personality is a result of harsh parenting and conditional love. However, Milgram found that many fully obedient participants recorded having a good relationship with their parents. This is a problem because it seems very unlikely that the vast majority of participants were fully obedient in Milgram's study who would have grown up in such a harsh environment. Therefore, again, an authoritarian personality caused by harsh parenting may not be a complete explanation as to why old people obey. It is also a limited explanation. Any explanation of obedience in terms of individual personality finds it hard to explain obedient behaviour in the majority of a country's population. For example, in pre-war Germany, millions of individuals all displayed obedient, racist and anti-Semitic behaviour. This was despite the fact that they must have differed in their personalities in all sorts of ways. It seems unlikely that they could all have an authoritarian personality. This is a limitation as it um, is clear that an alternative explanation is much more realistic, such as the social explanations. There is also political bias to the F scale, as it measures the tendency towards an extreme of form of right-wing ideology. Christian Jehoda argued that it has been argued that there is a political biased interpretation of the authoritarian personality, whereas in fact extreme right-wing and left-wing ideologies have much in common, um, not the least of which is that they both emphasise the importance of complete obedience to legitimate political authority. It's a limitation of Adorno's theory because it's not comprehensive dispositional explanation that can account for obedience to authority across the whole political spectrum. There is a methodological issue in that the F scale um, was worded in the same direction throughout the questionnaire. Uh, this means it's possible to get a high score for authoritarianism just by sticking the same line of boxes down the side of one page. People who agree with the items on the F scale and therefore not necessarily authoritarian but merely acquiesces and the scale is just measuring the tendency to agree to everything. 